Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show. Prepare to gag, yeah. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Radio Gag, the weekly Gays Against Guns show. Radio Gag is your weekly update on how to end the horror that is the American gun violence epidemic. I'm your host, Ty Kersley. This week, whole new ball game. This week, we want to focus on the New York gun regulations that are taking effect this month. Barry Graubart, legislative lead for Moms Demand Action in New York State, and fellow gagger J.W. Walker analyzed the new New York State gun laws and the possibilities for outcomes of the 2022 midterm elections. Also, September is National Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. The Everytown for Gun Safety Support Fund released a new report detailing the rise of people dying by gun suicide in cities. We will look at the key findings from that report. But first, here is the GVP News with Libby Edwards. The shooter who terrorized a Colorado movie theater in 2012, killing 12 people and injuring 70, charged more than $11,000 worth of guns, ammunition, and tactical gear on credit cards in the months leading up to the attack. The man who shot up the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida, put more than $26,000 on credit cards for firearms and ammunition used in killing 49 and injuring 53 people at the club. And the shooter who killed 59 people at a music festival in Las Vegas in 2017 charged almost $95,000 on credit cards for his guns. Federal law requires financial institutions to report suspicious activities. However, because there has been no code to separate purchases at gun stores, it has been difficult to trace firearms trafficking. In July 2021, the advocacy group Guns Down America and New York-based Amalgamated Bank, which was founded by union workers nearly 100 years ago and calls itself the nation's oldest socially responsible bank, applied to the International Standards Organization to create emergent code tracking firearms and ammunition sales. The application to create a code was twice denied. However, various state attorneys general, managers of state and federal pension funds, and lawmakers such as New York City Mayor Eric Adams, New York Senator Zelnor Myrie, Governor Kathy Hochul, Senator Elizabeth Warren, and Representative Madeline Dean, among others, wrote to the credit card companies urging them to create the merchant code. 24 Hours, American Express, Visa, and MasterCard announced that they have finally agreed to create a code to categorize gun and ammunition sales. According to New York Attorney General Letitia James, labeling gun and ammunition sales is a responsible, common-sense way to help protect Americans. Welcome, listeners to our whole new ball game episode of Radio Gag. We have here uh, Barry Graubart, the legislative lead in New York State for Moms Demand Action, and J.W. Walker, one of our activists with Gays Against Guns. Welcome, gentlemen. Our subject today is the New York State gun laws that are taking effect uh, this week and last week as a result of the Supreme Court ruling which struck down New York's 100 plus year old laws regarding gun ownership and permits. So 
get a little bit more into it, gentlemen, and Jay, Barry, welcome, and take it away. Thank you, Sarah. Hi, Barry. Welcome. Thanks for coming back. Hey, Jay. Always happy to be here. Um, so, yes, as Sarah said, um, the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin um, decision from the Supreme Court has upended, in New York's case, a century of gun laws and gun laws in a lot of other states, municipalities across the country. I'm going to run down um, for our listeners just like a little bit of, of the information about how New York has responded uh, and a little bit about how some of the other states have responded as well. Um, I'll start with the other states. So uh, in addition to New York, California, and New Jersey have both passed sort of rafts of new legislation to sort of work around the constraints that the Supreme Court have put on our, our, our states. Maryland, under the GOP governor, Larry Hogan, which did have some pretty strong gun laws, is just sort of turned around and said, OK, we're just going to implement what the you know what the Supreme Court has said we have to implement. Massachusetts basically did the same thing but said they were going to come back in the next legislative session to deal with things. So we'll have to see where that happens. Also as a Republican governor, so we'll have to see where that is. Uh, Illinois said that the change didn't affect their laws. Hawaii right now is just sort of wait and see. They don't seem to be knowing what they're going to be doing in Hawaii, but they are starting to issue new gun licenses. Um, D.C. right now, there's a lawsuit uh, against D.C. to overturn the transit system gun ban. You know, they, they, they seem to be trying to come to terms to this and not really moving forward. Now, New York, where we are, our, our legislature uh, passed and our governor signed a, a whole bunch of things, uh, ban on carrying firearms in sensitive places, and those sensitive places include all sorts of things, healthcare facilities, public protests, um, at public protests, government buildings, universities, libraries, playgrounds, parks, bars, restaurants that serve alcohol, theaters, stadiums, museums, polling places, and casinos. Um, they also said that people uh, will, will not be allowed to take guns into any business or workplace unless the owners put up signs saying that guns are welcome. But there's a weird discrepancy between those um, between those two laws, and that's in the realm of bars. On one hand, the law says that bars and restaurants that serve alcohol are spaces that New York is not, you know, is not allowing concealed carry to be. On the other hand, in the area that talks about um, workplaces having put up signs, it includes bars as a bars and restaurants as a place where um, the proprietor can put up a sign that says, uh, yes, we welcome you to come in strapped to the gills. So I'd, I'd love it if you could, um, you know, talk about the overalls, but if you could get into that as well. Sure. Thanks, Jay. Um, so, you know, it's, yeah, the sausage making of legislation is always kind of an interesting process, particularly when it's kind of crammed as a special session and what they do. Uh, you know, just stepping back for a second, the interesting thing, we knew this was coming, right? We all knew almost, I think it was two years ago now, in 2020, yeah. the New York State Legislature put in a, a small change to how New York City gun carry laws were done, hoping it would, you know, turn, make this point moot and, and, and it would not go further in court. The Supreme Court was eager to take this case on and didn't yeah. accept that. But we've had a couple of years to plan, and I know organizations like GAG, and Moms Demand Action and others have been working with the governor, with the legislature, you know, for the past year. So so this didn't come as a surprise, but it's still when it came together, it was, it was trying to piece this together. And there, it does look like there are some inconsistencies. I, I think the good thing here, again, 
you know, and as you mentioned, the whole thing that went away was it used to be that to carry a gun in public, you needed to show proper cause. Yeah. Right. And and that was I learned that as a kid. It was always the example always given that, you know, if you worked in the diamond district and carried hundred thousand dollars worth of jewels, you could then get a gun permit. But if you happen to be someone who says, you know, I get scared because there's scary looking people on the subway. That was not enough cause to say you can carry a gun. Right. And, and the, the Supreme Court threw that out. Um, you know, so what they we've done is tried to take these different approaches. The sensitive spaces you mentioned, subways, schools, theaters, you know, libraries, government buildings, hospitals, Times Square explicitly, uh, and, and these other places were, were identified. You know, there's going to be complexity in there, too, because to find a school camp. My daughter went to school upstate New York at Skidmore in Saratoga. It's really easy. You can kind of it's a box. You can kind of find where does the campus begin and end. But, right. you know, Elena Kagan, when this case was first presented to me, what about NYU? You know, exactly. it's a hodgepodge of buildings. They've taken over half the West Village, but you can't define the campus. Columbia, even where they've been so Columbia. expansive. Yep. Yeah. So it's really hard to do. And, and that's where the state has looked to municipalities to say, you define it. Uh, and that's great. So Times Square is not necessarily, you know, the four blocks or whatever, but it's a pretty broad area approaching the whole Times Square area. So we'll get there. You know, the bars and restaurants issue, there does seem to be that inherent conflict in, in the way it was written. Um you know, I was a bartender for four years in college. I, I I never once said this situation will be better if someone had a gun. You know, it's we we know that having and, and in fact, what's interesting, we just celebrated this weekend, recognized the the twenty first anniversary of nine eleven. Until nine yeah. eleven, NYPD rule to police officers was when they were off uh, duty to not carry guns when they went out to a bar. Mm-hmm. That shifted after 9-11 when suddenly everybody said, you, you know, you might look run into someone who looks like they might, uh, you know, be Islamic and therefore you should have your gun. And, you know, save that for another discussion. Yeah. But, you know, we, even NYPD recognize people who are trained should not have guns in bars. So right. we'll see what happens here. But right now, again, there is that conflicting. It does say bars and restaurants that serve alcohol are, are on the banned list. But then it does seem that if a bar or restaurant, it, they did leave the opening where a bar or restaurant could put in that language around you're welcome to carry guns here. One other piece on that, I've worked pretty closely with my Texas Moms Demand volunteers. In Texas, when they did their open carry laws a few years ago, uh, what they did was they they had the reverse. They said you could carry it into any private building unless there was language right. in the window. We and they, And they made it where it had to be like, you know, 24 point type and these thousand word message, you'd have to take up two thirds of your window with it. We ended up our volunteers down there made really attractive signs and, and went door to door and give them out to thousands of, of, of storefronts. But here we don't have to write. It's only the ones who want who explicitly say you can do it. So I think it's going to be, you know, hard in Texas. There was a blog post. The NRA Texas came did shortly after their law saying, Open carry in Texas has been a failure because when I go, sh- you know, I, I'm running errands and I go to five stores, I can't carry my gun in, in all five of them. Therefore, what do I do with my gun? Right. I think we're going to see that here where it's not going to be easy to to go and suddenly start concealed carrying because you might want to stop in Starbucks or you might want to go into the library and get something. You- so so we, we will see.
You're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM Free Speech Radio. This is Radio Gag, the Gaze Against Gun Show. You can hear us on WBAI on Tuesdays at 2.30 p.m. or on your favorite podcast platform. And here's more of fellow gagger J.W. Walker and Barry Graubart of Moms Demand Action discussing the new New York State gun laws. Uh, and so, you know, you know, moving forward through, you know, through some of the changes um, that one one really great thing that I found with the change the new law that was uh, established is that once they've been given a concealed carry license, they have to undergo periodic background checks. They also have to turn over the contact information for their spouse, their domestic partner or any other adults living in the household. And there's they it, when they're going through the process, they have to turn over a list of all their social media accounts that they've had for the last three years. That was a really interesting, interesting choice. Yeah, I agree. I also think that's going to be the first thing that gets challenged in the courts from privacy. Now, nobody's saying you have to give a password to your accounts, right? It's only right. the stuff that's publicly out there. And I think it's it's incumbent upon will will be important and helpful here. And then there's one aspect of it which I think is really 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 great enhancing the safe storage requirements they have uh, expanded the safe storage requirements for households that have children before it was if you had children under the age of 16 living in the household now they've expanded it to uh, under the age of 18 and in addition they've said that uh, if you are carrying a concealed weapon in your car that also has to be safely stored but then the question becomes well one one question is how are they going to implement and enforce that in terms of like exactly what sort of storage um, storage unit do you have to have in your car, et cetera? The other part of it is that, um, you know, we know that when there are laxer gun laws, when more people have guns, gun theft goes up and a lot of crimes are committed with stolen guns. And so interesting that they only focused on the access that children might have to guns. Love to hear your your thoughts on that. So again, I think extending it to vehicles makes a lot of sense. Um, You know, again, going in and and the same reason, if you can't take public transportation and now you can't leave your glove, your your gun in your glove compartment, in that Texas example I mentioned, where you go visit five stores, oh, Starbucks doesn't allow it, I'll just leave my gun in in the glove box. And by the way, in Texas, maybe I don't lock my car door and I, I get surprised when somebody opened my glove box and took that gun. So I think there's a lot of this stuff that has still, Department of Criminal Justice Services has worked through like the training process, but they haven't gone through all of the details on what that secure, locked and cannot be accessed directly. But I agree, the, the, you know, the, the car, the, the gun theft about five years ago, maybe it was longer ago. Maybe it was, yeah, it was probably longer ago. In the Westchester County, the media did a, a FOIA request and they published the house address of every person who has a gun permit in Westchester County, where I live. Uh, they published this in a newspaper and the gun owners went crazy. And one mm-hmm. of their arguments were, People are going to come and come break in and steal my guns. And, you know, I, well, but gun, I thought guns made you safer. We go through it. I'd like to see legislation nationally around uh, requirements for reporting when a gun theft occurs, because that's where we yes. see a lot of that goes out. Of, you know, gun thefts happen. Sometimes gun thefts get facilitated by gun shops and other places. But gun thefts happen. There's no reporting mechanism. And, and those uh, those get reused. So, you know, right now we're we're in a situation where in an election year. Um, we've got this hodgepodge of laws all across the country. You know, everyone in the gun violence prevention movement recognizes that 
strong federal legislation is what is needed. You know, the the analysis of what's going to happen in the election says that the Democrats going from an evenly split Senate to having a little bit of of a majority in the Senate. There's a lot of thought that the Democrats, which are the party of gun violence prevention, could lose the House. And there's also talk that, well, one of the other horrible decisions of the Supreme Court, which was the decision uh, overturning Roe versus Wade, has energized a lot of the progressive and liberal electorate. What do you think? Our, our chances are of getting some more important legislation passed in the next year. I do think a lot of Republicans are going to be like, OK, we did gun violence. We're not going to go near it again for the next 10 years. And we saw in New York after the SAFE Act, it was five years before they would take any new bills. I don't know that you're going to see Republicans embrace it and say, see, it's a winning issue for us. We have a chance at holding and maybe growing the Senate lead. Don't anyone exhale on the Senate. We've got a lot of work to do in in, in the next, you know, eight weeks or so. So, you know, we've got phone banks for you to join. The House, I think, you know, just looking at New York, where I am, you know, we can be that firewall. We've got 19 you know, districts up along the Hudson Valley, 19, 22, 18, 17, and then a couple on Long Island, uh, New York 3 and New York 1. Um, there's some winnable seats and some seats we need to defend. We saw you mentioned the Dobbs decision on Roe. We saw that that in Hudson Valley helped Pat Ryan win. Now it's the whole yeah. way that works with redistricting. He's actually moving to a different district. So that district that he just won, New York 19, now it's Josh Riley is running for that, and he's running for 18. So it's a beautiful time the fall to go visit the Hudson Valley and knock on doors is one thing I would say. We're going to have to work really hard to protect this. You know, we, we can't let the courts get worse, right? We need to start to do exactly. some things. If we can pick up, and look, I don't want Ohio to be the, the one we pick up because I don't think Tim Ryan's going to be kind of doing anything. He'll be a mansion-ish one. But if we can pick up Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, hold what we have, and maybe pick up North Carolina or, you know, God bless Florida, if we can knock off Rubio. (laughs) We do have a chance to have a real majority that would be open to things like reshaping and and the the court and and doing work there. So, you know, it's all about elections for the next seven weeks. Exactly. Fingers crossed and get out and do the work. Exactly. I will say if anyone wants, you can... uh, if, if you text the word app, APP, to 64433, you can download the Moms Demand Action app, and we'll, we will put in your uh, your location, and you'll see upcoming opportunities for phone banking, canvassing, uh, and, and doing work there. We've got a, uh, a, a phone bank this Friday, uh, which is New Yorkers for Georgia, for uh, uh, Raphael Warnock and Stacey Abrams. So we'd love to do get people to jump on that this this Friday. I think it's the sixteenth. You can um, you can if if you want information on that, the easiest thing to do you can actually just um, email our team. Would love to know who you are. It's nycmomsdemandaction at gmail.com. So it's nycmomsdemandaction at gmail.com. Thank you, Barry. All right, guys. Thanks a lot for joining us today. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. September is National Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. The Everytown for Gun Safety Support Fund released a new report detailing the rise of people dying by gun suicide in cities. The rate of people who died by gun suicide in cities increased 11% over the past decade, and now make up an average of over 4 in 10 city gun deaths. Accounting for over 7,000 deaths a year, or nearly 20 suicides a day, 
Cities and states with the strongest gun violence prevention laws have about half the rate of people who die by gun suicide as those in states with the weakest laws, demonstrating the importance of legislative action in preventing gun violence in cities. Cities with the most gun shops experience nearly four times higher rates of people who die by gun suicide than those with the fewest gun shops, signaling the importance of expanding cities' focus beyond illegal guns. Smaller cities and those with the fewer walkable neighborhoods experience higher rates of people who die by gun suicide, underscoring the importance of adequate access to resources and networks of social support. Cities with the most parks have about half the rate of people who die by gun suicide as those with the least, suggesting that cleaning and greening efforts may offer benefits in reducing both gun homicides and suicides. Preventing suicide in cities in the U.S. requires a multifaceted approach that includes the following recommendations. At the policy level, extreme risk laws, waiting periods, background checks, secure storage, and voluntary do-not-buy lists save lives by limiting the ease and immediacy of acquiring firearms, especially during vulnerable times. City governments can also address gun suicides by expanding the resources allocated to prevent them, including funding for mental health care, more parks and green spaces, and greater data availability. Gun shop owners can contribute to educational campaigns, provide third-party storage options, learn to recognize signs of distress in purchasers, and post warning signs about risks of gun ownership. Local governments can provide training and support to community leaders like barbers and beauticians to recognize the risk factors and warning signs to look for when someone may be contemplating suicide. Learn how to talk about mental health with people in your life. Get help. Reach out for free and confidential support when you, a loved one, or a peer needs to talk to someone. As a reminder, 988 is the suicide and crisis lifeline. Good afternoon, listeners. I'm so excited. We have author Wendy Jones from Ida Bell Publishing here to tell us about the two books that we're going to offer you as a thank you gift when you become a WBAI buddy today. They're also available as a premium. Wendy, thank you for being with us. Tell us about the books. Well, the first one is An Extraordinary Life, Josephine E. Jones. And Josephine E. Jones was born in 1920, the year white women got the vote. Born in South Carolina, she came to New York City in 1946 to work as a cook in private homes. By 1967, she became probably the first black woman in management at a Fortune 500 company. In addition, in her Harlem neighborhood, she was the person who helped all the community members clean up a previously drug-saturated block. And finally, when her marriage broke up, she worked three jobs to send her daughter to the best schools that she could find that had the best education available. And that daughter was me. So this woman battled racism, sexism, and classism, and she did it with grace and style. And she made sure that she helped everybody she possibly could. And the second book, The Culinary Art Portfolio of Josephine E. Jones, focuses on her work. Now, she was the head of the employees cafeteria at Standard Brands. Remember Chase and Sanborn Coffee, Royal Gelatin, Planters Peanuts? All right, she wasn't just an administrator, she was also an artist. 
So she made fruits and, and salads that were so beautiful, people did not want to eat them because they look like pictures. And you can have this very book. In fact, you can put the pictures on your wall and the stories about each of the culinary art pieces. And it will inspire you to have artistic meals of your own. So please call 212-209-2950 or go to give to the number two WBAI.org and become a BAI buddy in the name of Radio Gab. Thank you very much for $15 a month. Well, it's time to end our show. To find out more about working with us, please go to gazeagainstguns.net or follow us at Gaze Against Guns NY on Facebook and Instagram or Gag No Guns on Twitter. Everybody is welcome at any and all gag events. Thanks for listening, and we are back with a new episode every Tuesday at 2.30 p.m. And don't forget, you can listen to our previous shows anytime on the WBAI website or on any major podcast platform. Thank you, and have a great and safe day. Come to the movies and watch us fall. Come to church, come to school, kill Kill us all. Go on block, block, block any gun laws. Sell your soul, have no shame. Yes, it's one, two, three strikes we lose at the old gun game.